Welcome, as always, to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, joined by my co-host, Brian Chiglinski. Hi, Brian. Hey, Josh. Before we get to the show, why don't we introduce ourselves a little bit? So what do you do here at Allidade? Yeah, that is a great question. Hopefully, I can uh, figure out the answer in a, a year or two. I think that's we were talking uh, earlier with our growth team about uh, life at a startup is basically uh, getting hired and then finding out exactly what you will do and how it will change from one week to the next. Um, so technically, I'm Allidade's uh, Senior Director of Content and Communications, kind of our communications director on the PR side and also helping our marketing team uh, kind of create the most engaging content, uh, whether it's blog posts or uh, fact sheets, one pagers, things that really help uh, make the case to uh, practices and physicians as to why they should sign up uh, with Allidade. So trying to trying to share the Allidade voice out in the world. So you were a, a, a speechwriter before you got to Allidade. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, back in my former life, I was a speechwriter to the uh, secretary of HHS. Uh, so we were well at the end of the Obama administration and then uh, 63 million Americans uh, voted me out. So uh, I ended up, uh, Allidade, Allidade saved me from an, uh, a future of unemployment. And are you still doing a lot of writing? Yeah, a little bit on the side to try to keep it up a little bit and uh, try to write when I can. I will say having a baby drastically reduces the amount of time and brain power that it takes to write anything coherent. So uh, not doing not doing quite as well these days, uh, but I'm trying to. <laughs> now, isn't isn't being a writer really just mostly kicking walks, looking out the window and procrastinating anyways? Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. It's 90 percent. Uh, thinking about what you want to write and thinking about things that can distract you from writing. And then 10%, a uh, mind numbing panic of why haven't I written this yet? It's due in an hour. So that's how the best writing gets done, you know? All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so how about you? What do you do as Allidade Senior Medical Director here? Yeah, my title is a mouthful, uh, Senior Medical Director of Quality and Wellness. You know, as you say, there is a lot at a company like ours of figuring out what your job is as you go along. Uh, it is primarily these days, uh, as you know, I'm a psychiatrist is my training, um, mm-hmm. helping Allidade try to figure out strategies for the care of those with behavioral health disorders, and even more so around helping Allidade uh, do well on providing quality care and meeting some of the quality measurements um, that health insurance companies ask of us. Uh, and wellness, a lot at a place like Allidade is around um, just the general concept of keeping people people well and healthy, which is the, the core of value-based care, but um, better and more annual wellness visits. Uh, I'd say that's where most of my day goes. I remind myself of this regularly. If, if there was a playbook for what Allied was doing, we wouldn't need to be here. You know, it's yeah. a new thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are all trying to, we, we know what the goal is. It's to get patients healthier, to save money for the healthcare system. But within that, it really is almost daily or at least weekly trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's been interesting, uh, especially I'm sure coming from uh, your field of expertise and my experience in the federal government, just very different about the way that things get done at Allidade uh, and at a, a place that's kind of building. Where, like in the federal government, for example, you, you know, you have a lot of brilliant people working on programs that have existed for decades. And uh, anytime you ask a question, there are like 15 people who have been working on it much longer than you have and thinking about it much harder. Um, but at Allidate, every time some new question comes up, it's kind of like, oh, we haven't explored that before. Let's do it. I think we kind of get into that discussion a little bit with this uh, pilot study that Chelsea talks about. It's every time there's a connection made or a thread made, it's like, okay, now we need to go build it. Now we need to go road test it. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, 
trying out some different muscles that I think, uh, you know, um, uh, that can be a little, a little chaotic sometimes, but uh, a lot of fun. So, yeah, the end result being being important enough to keep us engaged. Um, but yeah, the show today, uh, Chelsea Graves, Alavade's, um Director of Medicaid Performance, talking about some work she did, uh, or she and a, a large team did in Mississippi. Um, I was struck by a few things. One, the way that value-based care really can lend itself to taking care of the underserved, where the outcome matters more than just the process. Um, but two, it's always a little bit of a downer for me thinking about the Medicaid population. Um, in psychiatry, there's a line that um, those who need the most, we help the least. Um, and what it, it's a little bit um, glib, but it's you know the sort of person who comes in four times a week for psychoanalysis mm -hmm. is probably doing better than the patient with serious mental illness who struggles to get in you know once every few months for 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of that with Medicaid, that these are patients who really have a lot going against them, and there's just less money in the system um, to provide them better care. So I, I was both heartened that value-based care can reorient the system towards that, but I also just don't like being reminded of, of the way this, the, the structure exists currently. Yeah. And especially with, with the Medicaid program, the fact that, you know, obviously Allidade works in Medicare. Traditionally, that's like how we kind of got our start was the Medicare shared savings program. Uh, and the Medicaid program, on the other hand, is so different from state to state in terms of the types of funding that they get, the types of uh, support, the types of care they're able to provide just varies so much. So you're really working with like 50 different uh, uh, kind of payers across the country with it. Um, I think what I took away and not to not to spoil uh, the, the great conversation that we're going to show after this, but just the results of the pilot study were astounding to me where uh, in the middle of a pandemic, they doubled primary care visits and nearly doubled uh, annual primary care visits. So if I'm understanding right, if someone was getting annual care before and they dropped off for a year or so, they actually were able to help restart for many um, patients for nearly 80%. And it shows that I think uh, with just some slightly more attention, slightly more funding, you can accomplish really incredible results, even in the headwinds of a global pandemic where everyone's hunkering down at home and staying away from doctor's offices um, and not engaging with the healthcare system. Uh, I think it, it shows to your point, like we spend the least on a lot of those most vulnerable populations that need the most care. Um, but when we do spend a little bit, it can have amazing results. Um, so that, that was maybe the optimistic uh, spin on, on your uh, take from the episode, but, um, but yeah, they just, those results just blew me away. Yeah. Heartening also just to be clear that there are people working the levers of value-based care um, creatively to provide better care and outcomes. Exactly. Um, absolutely. Um, all right, let's hear it. Now we're joined by Chelsea Graves, Allidade's Director of Medicaid Performance. Thanks so much for joining us, Chelsea. Good morning, Brian and Josh. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, we're excited. We're excited to talk a little bit about uh, your work on kind of meeting patients where they are, especially uh, more vulnerable patient populations. Just thinking broadly, uh, what's the problem that you are trying to address uh, on working to expand healthcare access for vulnerable populations? Well, um, very good question, loaded question, I would say, but certainly getting started, I would say that the, the problem we were looking to solve in this particular instance was related to maintaining the PCP patient relationship in the midst of an unprecedented global pandemic. 
It was a challenge, but it was so important in Mississippi to make sure that we were providing access to care and creating an opportunity for our practices to continue to engage in preventative care in the midst of the challenges that faced with the pandemic. And so it was, it was in tandem with providing awareness and education around coronavirus, but then also how can we engage patients so that we can provide quality health as well as um, prevent poor health outcomes. Chelsea, we were glad to invite you on, not just for your deep knowledge on this topic, but you recently presented um, at the National Association of ACOs annual meeting on the topic of meeting patients where they are, strategies to expand healthcare access for vulnerable patient populations. Uh, I feel like I understand what a vulnerable patient population is, but how are you defining that? So patients that are considered, in my opinion, vulnerable are those that are at greater risk for poor health outcomes, and that is in comparison to the the general um, patient population. Yeah, and what what are some of those worst outcomes that you see amongst this population as compared to the general population? Um, Unmanaged um, chronic conditions, untreated chronic conditions, lack of preventative care as it relates to wellness visits, um, missed vaccinations, those, those are particularly those standout um, treatments and conditions that come front of mind. But then there's also just the um, misuse of, of the healthcare system being in the inappropriate care setting. And, and a lot of that information um, is not conveyed to the population in a way where it's digestible and they understand exactly how to navigate the health system or the healthcare system in an efficient and um, proactive way. A little bit like my last question, I feel like I have a general notion about why vulnerable patient populations have these worse outcomes, but what are the actual mechanisms behind it? If you are poor, if you live in an underserved community, what's the sequence of things that leads to you getting these worse health outcomes? The population is at greater risk, Josh, is mainly because of non-health related issues that they are facing. And these issues are social factors housing, where will I live? Where, where will I be able to provide a roof for my children? The constant um, cycle of poverty and, and just the lack of resources financially coupled with the lack of education in many instances. When we look at food insecurity and the lack of access to quality foods and healthy foods in many communities is a, is a huge factor in Mississippi. And, and when, when individuals are faced with these challenges and there is not an appreciation in the healthcare system for these factors and how they impact health outcomes, we, we miss the population and, and it really creates a situation that has worse outcomes. So this population, it seems, faces a number of challenges that uh, go beyond the general population and beyond what we normally see as under the purview of healthcare treatment as usual. Um, so how does value-based care differ from the kind of usual treatment uh, that these kind of patients would receive? Value-based care programs improves the health outcomes for patients, especially vulnerable patients, by replacing low-value and low-quality services with high-value and high-quality services and care. 
And this is especially different as it relates to the traditional fee-for-service program. And here you see through value-based care and intentionality. It is an intentionality to deliver care in a way that centers not only on the healthcare needs of the individual, but the, the social factors, that whole person-centered approach to care. Yeah, I can really see a role for, for value-based care in underserved populations. And you know, if you're just treating two kids with asthma, and one comes from a pristine household, uh, and you're a physician, and you give them their inhaler, and you get paid for that, they may have a fine outcome. If you have a child who is in an environment that is very dusty, that is not clean, that is very, that has, um, there's a lot of pollution in the neighborhood, you know, you live next to a, um, a power plant, and you give that kid an inhaler, they may not have good outcomes. And so to incentivize physicians and other providers to really be focused on the outcome rather than just the transaction of it seems like it could really be beneficial to patients. Is, is that what we're hoping for here? Absolutely. And that's, and that's what we've been able to um, see demonstrated through the value-based care model. And not only um, the improved health outcomes, but also the strengthening of the relationship between the PCP and the patient. And when working with vulnerable populations, there is in many instances a distrust there. The relationships that are forged through the value-based care model allows for patients to begin to trust and build healthy, bi-directional flow of conversation and trust with their, with their providers. And that means a lot to, within this population. This isn't an abstract thing that we're talking about. Uh, you and your team have actually been working on a pilot program focused on the Medicaid population in Mississippi, uh, working closely with the Community Health Center Association of Mississippi in 2020. Uh, can you help kind of set the scene a little bit for that study? Uh, what was the patient population and what were the market conditions? Sure. So as stated earlier, the year was 2020. Um, we started the pilot in May of 2020. So certainly we recognized in um, the latter part of Q1 of the year that we were in the midst of a pandemic. As we all pivoted, including the, um, the healthcare system in Mississippi, there was, a, there was a need to start bridging care, not only for those that were impacted by the pandemic, but certainly those that were disconnected from care. And the, that was the root of the partnership coming together. This was Allidade Mississippi Leadership and the Community Health Association of Mississippi partnering to address the issue. It was really thinking through how can we partner to provide wraparound services, um, supports that will provide the undergird needed for a time as critical as the 2020 pandemic season. And the, the hope was through this partnership and through these, these, this concerted effort that we will be able to improve overall health outcomes, reduce cost of care, and of course, impact care utilization. And, and so that, that exactly, you know, it, it, when really surmising what was the foundation of the partnership, that, that's it. All right. So now we want to know, what did you find? Did it work? Did it work? Yes, Josh. We had some phenomenal results from the partnership. The biggest takeaway would be the 106% increase in primary care visits from 2019. These numbers blew us away. Um, this is certainly in the midst of a pandemic, target population being vulnerable populations, and then in Mississippi, a state that has um, 
very severe um, health outcomes and, and data, data points that are not the most favorable as it relates to um, the challenges in the, in the state for overall health. And to have this level of engagement um, means a lot and demonstrates that by partnering together and establishing creative thought process in caring for vulnerable populations, you can truly move the needle in care. Another key takeaway for us was the 76% increase in annual primary care visits. This is huge for us, not only in the, the number of the increase, but also the fact that a large number of the lives under management in the Medicaid ACO in Mississippi are pediatrics. So this is during a time that children are disconnected from schools. Chelsea, I feel like we need to reiterate the results there because that's just incredible that we are comparing 2020 to 2019. We saw double uh, the primary care visits and seven, a 76% increase in annual primary care visits. I think just to pull out, we're talking about comparing 2019 before the global pandemic to 2020, right in the midst of it, when patients were staying at home, when kids were out of school, uh, and the traditional connections to primary care, to doctor's visits, uh, were really at their lowest. And we saw this across the country of just patients who are avoiding visiting the primary care doctor at all. And well, not only to show what can be done with the resources uh, that we put into this program for this population, but uh, the results that we were able to see amidst such incredible headwinds just shows what we could do if we're not facing a global pandemic and if patients are actually able to go uh, visit their doctors. I'd love for you to tease a little bit of the difference out between the 106% increase in primary care visits versus the 76% increase in annual primary care visits. What's the what's the difference between those two? Absolutely. And Brian, I would like to really start, if, if I can, with the composition of that particular ACO. And so at this time, we're looking at an ACO with roughly 30, 36,000 patients. 72% um, of the 35,000 are adolescents. When we look at the increase in terms of primary care visits from 2019, we're looking at those patients that are one, a subgroup that are connected to care, and then those that are not engaged in care, but are still assigned to our ACO. And that increase in the movement there to take individuals that were completely disconnected from care in 2019 um, and have them plugged into care in 2020 is what you're seeing in that 106% increase. When we look at 70 to 76% increase around annual primary care visits, these are patients that have seen, the, seen their PCP within the last 24 months, but for what various reasons were disconnected in the latter or certain portions of 2019 that re-engaged in care, and then those that continued to um, have their primary care visits um, maintained during 2020. And that is in the midst of the the, all the challenges in regards to logistics and being in person and all those facets to care. And will we be tracking over time the health outcomes of these patients to know that not just did this great work get people in for more primary care, which we know in general improves health. Um, we know that improving uh, access and more primary care visits actually brings down the total cost of care by preventing bad health outcomes. But what, what will we know going forward on these populations about whether this made a difference in outcomes. Yes, and so for specifically for our school-based health centers, we're able to track and we're building mechanisms in place now to be able to pull the data 
data points necessary to track the students as they matriculate through those schools. Once the students are plugged into care at the school-based health center, that becomes essentially their PCP. And so we are able to have that controlled group, that population that we can monitor and track on an ongoing basis. And we're able to see their health performance um, throughout their time in that particular institution. And we're looking to expand that more broadly across the entire ACO. So what were some of the biggest hurdles that this pilot faced in trying to improve patient engagement uh, for these patients? The biggest hurdle would have been around the attribution, patient attribution. That was the largest challenge that we faced. And that is largely because of the peer reporting and, and just the insights that's necessary to ensure that we are carefully um, analyzing that data as it relates to the PCP's office and the patient's home address to ensure that there's a geographical alignment so that it is an appropriate um, assigned practice to that particular patient. And in many instances, we saw that that was not the case. And um, that that was a lot of work because it, it is quite challenging to uh, drive individuals to care or coordinate multimodal campaigns, outreaches to drive individuals into an office when that office is 75 miles away from your home. So it was, it was a lot of work there to, um, to, to really analyze the data, raise the concerns to the pair, and then be in a position to affect change with, with proper alignment. Chelsea, what would it take to, to scale this work, to apply it to other parts of the country? This framework is applicable and can be scaled with ease. One, it begins with a great partner. And for any ACO, especially working in vulnerable populations, your community health centers, federally qualified health centers, rural health centers are ideal partners. Many of their panel members are Medicaid recipients, dual recipients. So you'll be in a position to have a partner that is aligned with you on vision, goal, and mission. And then also it would be creating an atmosphere for appropriate accountability and exchange. Once you're able to take a model similar to ours, you would need to have points within your pilot or within your program where you're able to pivot and course correct based on what the data is showing and being in a position to be transparent with each other when um, when needs to change or adapt to new emerging concerns that have come up through the pilot, to be able to move through that without completely dismantling the, the pilot because it's not providing the, the traction and outcomes maybe that you desired going forward. So having that flexibility, being able to pivot, having the right partner, um, leveraging your, your data, your pair data, your um, all reporting aspects. This was a work that truly hinged on the work that was done within the data analytics component of our team here at Allidade. So having those pieces in place would be ideal for any ACO um, to be able to at least start the work in, in, in replicating the work that we did in Mississippi. I think one of the things that can be really helpful in replicating this work, as, as you mentioned, is finding that kind of a key partner and uh, the CHCs uh, across the country are just such great partners in knowing how to reach these populations and how to care for these patients. What about pulling back up the, the policy and kind of the policy landscape around this? Uh, we know there were also upstream efforts that were happening to change the policy environment uh, in the state and uh, around these types of care programs. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Sure. I would say really when looking at the program, I would describe it, the pilot into a three-pronged approach. That was one, the, the first start, which was just identifying who's the population in the attribution component that I just mentioned, understanding the patients that we're looking to outreach to, where they are, where do they live, and where are they assigned in terms of the location and the connection to their PCP. The next piece is how do we start the outreach component to these to the patients. And this is creating a, a multimodal for us, a multimodal outreach campaign, which was creative, thinking out of the box, non-traditional um, uh, processes and, and, and tactics for reaching the patient population do not always apply when um, working with vulnerable populations. So we took that approach. So that's the second prong is just being creative in the outreach to drive patients to care. And then the third piece was advocacy. And it was through the advocacy work that we were able to build a, a allocated policy team in Mississippi. The policy team has been able to find themselves in a position to leverage the, the voice of value-based care in the market, um, being in a position to also work with other stakeholders, legislators, and other in influential um, organizations to help move the needle for care. There's also the collaboration with our pair partners. We were able to take that advocacy work and expand it into the pair partner space to help support some of the initiatives and work there. And some of the specific things that come to mind as we look at the advocacy work was around Medicaid expansion, um, advocating and put amplifying the message and the voice here around the need for Medicaid expansion. There is also considering the, the environment we were in under the pandemic was the for telehealth access and being in a position to um, really advocate for the need to, to um, provide access in broadband access in rural areas. And, and those were just a few of the policy efforts that we were able to um, really leverage and support during this time. And it has expanded since we've, we've been able to deepen our work in Mississippi truly from this, from this pilot program in 2020. Chelsea, uh, those of us at Allidate who've been here across administrations from Democrat to Republican to Democrat uh, have found that generally value-based care is a bipartisan issue, thank goodness. Uh, have there been things with this current administration and their stated commitment to health equity that have changed the conditions on the ground already to allow efforts like this to grow? I would say so, certainly in Mississippi, as it relates to our the care that's provided within our federally qualified health centers, community um, health centers, and school-based partners, there has been a willingness there to understand the need for open access to care. In many instances, practices, independence, and community health centers have had pretty firm access hours, and they have been restricted for many minority groups and vulnerable populations that may not be able to take off of work in the middle of the day to take their kids to the doctor or are not in a position where they can meet that nine to five work schedule or that nine to noon office schedule on Fridays. Um, I, I've seen a movement now where we're seeing expanded services here from the independent practices as well as our CHCs. And it's great to see because we need to ensure that patients have points of access so that they can receive care from the appropriate care setting. We find that in many of my conversations on the ground with, with our patients and conversations I had in previous um, roles, I've seen many express the reason I went to 
to the ED or to the emergency room was because I did not have access to care to my PCP or to another care setting that Saturday morning. And um, that, that, that's just one example, but it's, it's so important when we look at the um, moving towards a more equitable um, environment for healthcare and providing access for all and care for all, we have to meet people where they are. And this program was really built around that, that message, meeting, meeting patients where they are. And part of the strategy is access and creating accessible care. So those expanded hours for, um, for care services and being able to connect and allow for patients to come in after hours, on weekends, that goes a long way. Well, Chelsea Graves, Allidade's Director of Medicaid Performance. Uh, thanks for your work on this important topic and for sharing it with us today. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. This episode of The ACO Show was produced by Leanne Horst, Dan Ablin, and Alana Coogan. You can find previous episodes on our website, alladay.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.